If you have been sexually abused as a child or know someone who was, stay tuned and welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. We're about to visit with Susan A. Clancy, Ph.D., author of The Trauma Myth, The Truth About Sexual Abuse of Children and Its Aftermath. In this conversation, we'll discuss the myth of when child sexual abuse takes place and how the abuse is perceived by the victim, the effects of denial, minimization, and blame, and how this issue within the Catholic Church is not being resolved. Susan Clancy is currently the Research Director of the Center for Women's Advancement, Development, and Leadership at the Central American Institute for Business Administration in Managua, Nicaragua. I spoke with her on April 12, 2010, by phone from her home in Managua, Nicaragua. Susan Clancy, welcome to Radio Curious. Thank you very much for having me here. So your book, The Trauma Myth, The Truth About Sexual Abuse of Children and Its Aftermath, uh, carries the assumption that trauma in sexual abuse is a myth. And I thought that might be a good place to start. Oh, I think that's a good place to start. It's also a very controversial place to start and not probably exactly what I meant. The problem is people use the word trauma in so many different ways. Um, I am referring to whether or not children are traumatized at the time of the abuse, meaning while the child is being sexually abused, are they experiencing terror, um, fear, pain, etc. And the truth is, in about 90% of cases of sexual abuse, the children is not experiencing terror or horror. Most children are just kind of confused and they don't understand what's happening. But later on in life, sexual abuse can have a very powerful negative psychological impact. So while it might not be traumatic at the time it happens, it can certainly be traumatizing for people later on in life, if that makes sense. And that realization comes with puberty and self-understanding of, of sexuality. I really think that we see sexual abuse through our adult eyes, and we forget that the people, the victims, are kids. And most kids do not understand very much about sex or sexually toned encounters, for a good reason. They're kids. And until they hit puberty, most children won't be able to understand or respond properly to sexually toned encounters. So you've got this kid being asked to do something that they don't really understand and they don't get, and they do not understand how to respond. But then later on in life, people come to understand sex better. Something later on in life reminded of them of what happened as a kid, and they realized, oh, my God, what he was doing to me was sexual in nature and wrong. What would you have named the book other than uh, the title that you gave it? That's an excellent question. Might I say, I think it was a dumb title. I think it was chosen to be controversial. I don't think that the publishing house anticipated that it would be so controversial that it would turn people off entirely. I think a better title would be Why I Never Told Anybody What Happened. Well, let's talk about what you characterize as society's inability to treat sexual abuse. Why is that inability so manifest? You want to know what I really think? 
That's what I'm curious about. This is Radio Curious. It's totally depressing. In the beginning, I used to think people didn't uh, prevent sexual abuse or react to it appropriately because they didn't understand enough about it. So people didn't understand that the perpetrators are often those that the children trust and care about. Or people didn't understand the characteristics of abuse, that kids don't understand it or that it's not violent. I think the truth is, in the abstract, we are all horrified by sexual abuse. Oh, my God, it's so terrible. How could an adult do that? We need to report this crime and punish the adult. For example, what's happening in the Catholic Church? We're expressing clear outrage at what happened and whether Pope Benedict mishandled it, et cetera, et cetera. But in reality, when people are exposed to sexual abuse, and I'm talking good people, mothers, fathers, their reaction is the same as the reaction we're seeing in the Catholic Church, is that they don't want to talk about it. They find it shameful. They can't believe it's possible. They don't want anybody to know because it would be embarrassing for the family. And I think one of the biggest reasons why sexual abuse still continues the way it always has is because deep down, all of us have a problem acknowledging it and reporting it when it happens. Because that means you could tell a good parent a thousand times, this is what you need to look out for, this is the characteristics, your child won't understand, when they do tell you, you need to believe them, and the parent could say, yes, I understand, I will react that way. But when push comes to shove and the parent learns that the child was abused by somebody close to the family or close to the community, the parent is going to want to hide it. I think you characterize that in your book is that the parent wants to hide it because it is the egocentric factor of the parent that uh, serves them well to keep it hidden. I think it is. I think people always have and still have a tendency to protect perpetrators and themselves at the expense of the victim. So better to let the victim feel ashamed and guilty and alone than for you. You have to feel ashamed and guilty and alone. And that's often what happens if you have to report the perpetrator. Well, let's come back to that in a moment. But first, I want to ask, do you feel that that approach is unique to the Western culture, uh, where there's a primarily a Judeo-Christian overlay of morals? Or do you think it's uh, a common to our species worldwide? What is common? The desire to hide sexual abuse? Or? Yes, yes. I've been doing a lot of work on this in Latin America for the last five years, and, you know, sexual abuse is rampant here. According to epidemiological data, it is as common in Latin America as it is in the United States, which means stunningly common. But in Latin America, it's hardly even on the radar screen. At least in the United States, we're expressing outrage. I have to congratulate pioneering feminists and child protection advocates and the mental health field for at least getting sexual abuse on the radar screen. In most places in Latin America, it just simply is not talked about. It's like what it was in the United States in the 1950s and 60s. Why is it not talked about? A huge reason sexual abuse is hidden is because the victims themselves feel too ashamed and guilty to report it. The second reason it's hidden is because when the victims do report it, uh, the people they tell choose to hide it also. And I think a major reason the people, the adults that the abuse is reported to hide it is, one, because they want to protect themselves. It would be embarrassing to have to admit it. And two, because deep down I think there are a lot of people who dismiss it. 
you know, when they hear about what happened, they think, ah, that wasn't a big deal. It happened so long ago, it didn't involve violence or pain or blood. Why don't you just forget about it? In this edition of Radio Curious, we're visiting with Susan Clancy from her home in Managua, Nicaragua. She's the author of The Trauma Myth, The Truth About Sexual Abuse of Children and Its Aftermath. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Susan, why uh, does the issue of sexual abuse and uh, sexual molestation of children remain hidden? It's an excellent question. Feminists in the 1970s referred to sexual abuse as the best-kept secret in the world. And what's so interesting is that 40 years later, it is still the best-kept secret in the world. First and foremost, the vast majority of victims, over 80%, will never report the crime to anybody. This is fascinating. These are people exposed to a clear-cut crime by societal standards, but most victims don't report it. And the main reason they say they don't report it is because they feel ashamed and guilty and alone. They feel like what happened to them is different from what happened to other people, or they reacted improperly, etc. You know, for a litany of reasons having to do with guilt and shame, victims keep it quiet. Even if the victim does choose to report the crime, and remember, less than probably about 20% of victims will report it at some point in their life, almost no person the crime gets reported to, will themselves report the crime. That's sort of a complicated way of saying if the victim decides to tell their parents, their parents decide not to call the police. So it's not just victims that don't report the crime to authorities. Parents don't report the crime to authorities. And the reasons for that are complicated, but, you know, they have to do with issues like parents don't believe it. Denial is very common. I can't believe someone would do something like that. Another reason parents don't report it is because they think it wasn't a big deal. So, you know, oh, it was 10 years ago. You didn't have to go to the hospital. Why don't we just forget about it? Another reason parents don't report it is out of shame and guilt themselves. They don't want to have to report on somebody that's part of the family circle or respected in the community. They feel that would be very embarrassing and shameful. So if that changes, it will be the best-kept secret in the world. And that goes back to what we just said, that it serves the person to whom the abuse or the crime of abuse was reported, uh, it serves them well not to repeat the report or to take it to the legal authorities. And that is what's emerging. And victims for 10 years have said to me the same thing. Of those who did tell family members about the sexual abuse, they say the worst part of the sexual abuse experience was not the abuse, it was the reactions of the families when the victim told them. And the reactions of the family, they almost always include denial, minimization, blame. Often parents will say, well, why didn't you stop it? Why did you still continue to love the person after? And then you have those parents who actually do believe it, and they'll still choose not to report it because they will say that it's too shameful. Think about it. The perpetrators, in contrast to the boogeyman theory that everybody believes, you know, people tend to think that sexual abusers are tasty-faced strangers, you know, trolling children's schoolyards in vans with shaded windows. You know, that's sort of the stereotype. But in almost all cases, the people that abuse kids are people the kids and their parents know and trust. Family members, fathers, stepfathers, teachers, priests, rabbis, soccer coaches, and it makes it very hard for the families to report these people. 
because there aren't, they aren't strangers who fit the profile of a criminal. They're people that the families care about and trust, and that is an extremely complicated dynamic to handle. Let's talk more about why that dynamic is so complicated to handle. People have an incredibly difficult time imagining that this crime could occur to them. So it's so easy in the abstract to talk about what you would do. Oh, it's common. I need to protect my children. If they're abused, I need to report the perpetrator. But all I have to say to everyone in the audience is imagine it happening to you. It's your child and she is telling you or he is telling you that someone you care about has sexually molested them. The first reaction that goes through most people's head is impossible, didn't happen. If it did happen, there must have been a misunderstanding. If it did happen, it wasn't a big deal. And underneath it all will be, oh, my God, this is something I don't want anybody to know. And it's extremely hard to get past that. In one aspect, that supports your comment that it serves the people with knowledge well not to pursue it. But in another aspect, it shows that the politicians will say, we have to get those people and we have to put them behind bars. There's a certain duplicity there when, it, when it's personalized by someone who carries the knowledge. I think that's an excellent way to put it, a certain duplicity. Um, and another way to put it is it's very easy in the abstract to talk about how you will act responsibly and uh, punish perpetrators, and it's one other, another thing entirely to actually have to act on it yourself. So then let's go back to what we discussed earlier about the people who dispute the thesis in your book and the, the presentation that you make. The main source of confusion is people believe I am saying that sexual abuse is not harmful, or that it is not wrong. And I am saying neither of those things. In fact, I could not be more clear in the book that sexual abuse is an atrocious crime that has to stop, and two, that even though the child may not be physically harmed at the time of the abuse, it can become incredibly psychologically damaging later on in life. I want to go back to something you just said, and that is, it can become... Can is the operative word. How does it operate to become so harmful, and what can be done to keep it from being so harmful? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I had enough, enough to work on with this book that was controversial that I didn't want to delve too much into what the exact mechanism of harm was. Um, the most I had said in the book is that it is harmful, but that the cause of harm is not direct. So, you know, if I stab you with a knife, the cause of harm is direct. Immediately as I stab you, you know, your muscle tissues cut open, your skin, et cetera, you will bleed. That's not how sexual abuse would harm, I would argue. that the, the, It's indirect. Um, it takes time. It has to be reconceptualized and understood by the victim. And what subsequently comes to harm the victim is not the action of abuse. It's the meaning the event had for the victim specifically that they were betrayed, that somebody they cared about could do this to them. It has to do with guilt, that they feel that there was something wrong with them, that it happened, there was something wrong with them for how they acted. also has to do with isolation. They feel like they're different from other people, that they had this kind of thing happen. And what I strongly believe is that when you're walking around feeling betrayed, unloved, guilty, and ashamed, 
that sets up a host of all kinds of other problems, like low self-esteem and anxiety and depression and sexual problems and trust issues, etc. And those are all of the problems that sexual abuse victims are prone to experience. So then let's move on to how can this issue be remedied? Well, I think one way to address the pain that victims experience is to directly get at the guilt and shame and isolation. Specifically, there are millions of victims out there that think that what happened to them is different from what happened to other victims. Why? Because they didn't fight it because they cared about the perpetrators, because they allowed it to happen, because they didn't understand it, and maybe they even liked it. So you've got these victims that had that kind of experience, and they are powerfully ashamed and feel guilty and feel like they're alone, so they don't tell anybody. Those are the dynamics and characteristics of sexual abuse for most victims. And even though you as a victim did not understand what was going on or that it was clearly wrong, even though you didn't fight it and may have loved the perpetrator, it was still a crime and it was not your fault. The other factor is that most victims, because they don't tell anybody, do not share or learn what happened to other victims to find out the commonality of their situation. Yes, that's exactly right. And then even what's interesting is I'll have victims come to me all the time saying, well, can you recommend something I can read on this topic? The problem is when the topic is discussed in the media or when psychologists write about the topic, it is almost always framed in the context of trauma and against your will. The emphasis is on, you know, terrible abuse, rape, meaning actual penetration, which rarely occurs, blood, and against your will violence. And because that doesn't fit the experience of most victims, it's not particularly helpful. So, you know, God loved the authors of The Courage to Heal. That's the best-selling book in sexual abuse ever. But the problem is I had so many victims come to me and say, The Courage to Heal makes me feel worse, because that wasn't the kind of abuse I had. You know, I feel like I allowed it to happen. I feel like I didn't say no. It didn't hurt me. So when I read those types of abuse experiences, I don't feel good about what happened to me. The way sexual abuse has been framed and understood by professionals can actually make some victims feel worse, and then they pay the price for that innocence later on in life. I'd like you to comment on what you characterize as the most powerful thing a person can say when they hear another person describe their sexual abuse. And that phrase is, I'm so sorry it happened. It is exactly it. This is what victims have said to me and to other researchers for 30 years. They want it to be acknowledged for someone to say, my God, it happened. I am so sorry. And then I just remember the last victim I talked to who said what so many other victims say, you know, she had tears in her eyes and she just said, I, I don't even need the perpetrator to go to jail. I just need somebody to say, that must have been so awful for you. I'm so sorry. I think that phrase of empathy goes along at so many levels of human interaction that I wonder your thoughts on what would happen if within the current discussion of sexual abuse in the Catholic Church, if the Pope were to say something along the lines of, I'm so sorry it happened. Yeah, you know, I've been thinking a lot about 
the situation with the Pope. And the problem is Pope Benedict, at least in Europe, did say to victims and their family, I'm so sorry about our mishandling of this shameful crime. But there was still a lot of rage that there was no punishment of the perpetrator, um, that the Pope wasn't saying that anything was going to be different in the future or that any of these priests would be defrocked. And I thought that was interesting because when victims came to talk to me, they were saying, I just want it to be acknowledged and to have someone say, I'm sorry. But what's happening in the Catholic Church is victims are also saying they want to know that the perpetrators are also being punished in some way, which I think is also consistent for what victims say. One of the things victims consistently talk about is being horrific, is they tell their families what happened. Their families say, "Uh uh-huh, and then the perpetrator still gets invited to Thanksgiving dinner. Or somebody else would say, you know, I told my mother, she said, let's never talk about this, and the perpetrator still comes to Christmas dinner. Or the perpetrator still gets invited to all the family events. So I I think even if victims don't necessarily want the perpetrator to go to jail, they want some acknowledgement that the crime occurred and that what the person did was wrong and that they are going to uh, have to bear some responsibility or punishment for it. Do you have some thoughts on why the Pope is not taking that leadership of acknowledgement? Well, one thing I will say is that there's a powerful lesson to be learned in that the reaction the Pope has had to sexual abuse, which is denial, I didn't know it was happening, I didn't get the memos, I didn't have time to read all of them, Uh, minimization, uh, you know, it happened 25 years ago, do we really need to be talking about it, Um, attack, many church officials are comparing the allegations of sexual abuse uh, to what, you know, the Jews experience. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. Um, you know, they're attacked. You know, the, it was a good pope. We're trying to bring them down. This is the devil's work, etc. But, I mean, this tendency to deny, to minimize, and to attack accusers, we see at almost all levels of society. This is how parents react. This is how leaders of other institutions react. This is even how the leader of the one institution we're supposed to to for moral guidance reacts. And that shows you how deep-seated the tendency to avoid responsibility for handling sexual abuse is. Well, Susan Clancy, what do you think Pope Benedict should do? I think Pope Benedict should just resign immediately. Why? Because it's ridiculous. I mean, look in the big picture. The church is, the whole world turns to the church for moral guidance. He is the leader of the Church. He is the closest thing to God in this world. And this man has been either implicitly or explicitly involved in sexual abuse cases involving tens of thousands of priests, in the, uh, victims, by Catholic priests. I mean, clearly, there's some kind of massive problem in the Catholic Church. And he was part of it, and now he's a leader. And I think that by resigning, he would send a signal to the rest of the world, the Catholic Church included, and all priests, that this is unacceptable and that this will not be part of the Church anymore. 
So, you know, I think it would be a, I think it would be him sacrificing a little bit of his own self-interest for the sake of something much bigger, which is the moral integrity of the Catholic Church. Well, Susan Clancy, author of The Trauma Myth, The Truth About Sexual Abuse of Children and Its Aftermath, I want to thank you for being with us on Radio Curious. What would you like to do with the rest of your one precious life? What I really want to do is what I've been thinking about for the last five years. I would like to either have a TV show or produce a TV show or work on a TV show that has to do with uh, psychological problems. And the TV show would be called Am I Normal? Each week, coverage of the, the sort of standard psychological problems and issues people are concerned about, and then you would have professionals, real scientists who are experts in the topics, talking about them. For example, as a psychologist, I get confronted all the time with people's issues. Most people in the world have a lot of psychological concerns and issues, either about them or their kids. You know, my daughter turned 13, she stopped eating, she lost 10 pounds, is this anorexia? Or my husband drinks six beers a night more when it's football games. You know, how do I know when it's a problem? Or I'm happily married, I love my husband, but I have fantasies about the guy next door. How do I know whether this is normal or not? And I think it would be an excellent opportunity for people to learn from experts and for experts to learn from people. And then, has there been an aha or eureka moment that has given you guidance in your life? I was in West Philadelphia, graduating from college in my attic bedroom. It was about 90 degrees and everything was going wrong. I had problems with statistics class, my boyfriend broke up with me, and I was on the phone crying to my father. I just was so upset about everything. I don't even know if this is good advice, but he said to me, you can cry all you want and feel bad for yourself, but when you hang up the phone, you won't have achieved anything. Get off the phone, shut up, figure out what's wrong in your life, and change it. I just remember at first being so angry with him for not being supportive, but then it hitting me what a waste of time and how pathetic I was to be there overwhelmed with my tears and sorrow. And I hung up the phone, and after that day, I approached things differently. I (laughs) tried to focus on what I could change and what I couldn't. So I think my father, in that moment, helped me sort of take more of an internal locus of control in terms of responsibility in my life. And finally, Susan Clancy, can you tell us of an interesting book that you've read lately? The book that I love is called Happiness in History. And it's basically Aristotle through Locke to Darwin, Marx, even Freud. It's these great thinkers talking about happiness, of what it is and uh, how to achieve it. Um, It's written by Darren McMahon. And then the other book, I didn't like it that much, but I can't stop thinking about it. It's written by Tara French, and it's called In the Woods. It starts out with the most creepy premise about three kids in Ireland who disappear one night in a forest. One of them is found. The next day, there's blood in his shoes, but it's not his own blood. Very creepy. Then the whole thing is sort of a detective story, trying to figure out what happened that night. In the end, the author never told you what happened. So I was gripped by this book, trying to figure out how they were going to resolve this strange supernatural crime, and they didn't. Tara French, wherever you are, you gotta write a you gotta write another one. Well Susan Clancy, thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious.
Thank you. It was a pleasure. Susan A. Clancy, Ph.D., is the author of The Trauma Myth, The Truth About the Sexual Abuse of Children and Its Aftermath. The books she recommends are Happiness, A History by Daryl M. McMahon and In the Woods by Tana French. This program was recorded on April 12, 2010. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious are available on our website, www.radiocurious.org. You can also subscribe to the Radio Curious podcast by clicking on our website. Our programs are also available in CD format. To get a copy, visit our website, radiocurious.org, for further details. And we appreciate your thoughts and ideas about our programming and do enjoy hearing from you. Our address is Post Office Box 7, Ukiah, that's U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482. Our email address is curious at radiocurious.org and the phone number is 707 462 6541. Our programs are recorded in our studios in Ukiah, California. Hannah Bird heads our post-production staff. You've been listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Thank you for joining us.